0: Well, uh, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I, I was promised earlier by a good friend that I uh, would get heckled in this service. So uh, I await. I await those hecklings, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. If you get your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Um, I did put it uh, on the screen for us. So for those of you who are lazy, no, I'm just teasing. We, we will look at the Bible <clears throat> oh, you know I was in I was scrolling through Instagram and somebody had made the, uh, kind of an offhanded uh post about reading and how you need to read more and that kind of thing and then interestingly his uh uh, first picture was that of a of a Bible. You wouldn't recognize it It was a Bible unless you'd seen many Bibles over your lifetime. It was black, and you could see the gold leafing on the side. And I said, oh, uh, it's the Bible, uh, the only book that reads you while you read it. And uh, I think there is a supernatural component to the scriptures. So if you would, look with me to Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. So uh, Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David uh, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While there, excuse me, while they were there, uh, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks. Uh, You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, "Glory, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. "'When the angels had left and gone into heaven, "'the shepherds said to one another, "'Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, "'which the Lord has told us about.' "'So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, "'who was lying in the manger.' And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. You know, Lord, we come to you in this moment. We recognize the sacredness of what we're celebrating, which is you. Lord, this is more than a regular birthday, Lord, this is a story, Lord, relating to how you, you redeemed us from the world and from the sin that we have partaken in. Lord, it's through you, through your forgiveness, that we have the opportunity to live the very best life and a future to look forward to in heaven. So, Lord, would you speak to your people, speak to those, Lord, who are here this um, afternoon, this morning, Lord, and speak to those with us online. In your name, Jesus, I pray, amen. I want to tell you about a preacher who was burned out. Phillips Brooks was a burned out preacher. Uh, he was known, though, in his time as the most inspirational pe- preacher of his time. But he had lost his fervor and couldn't seem to recover it. He was in his mid-20s when he accepted the position of uh, pastor at Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia. And in that moment, he quickly persuaded uh, super salesman and organist, Louis Redner, to come on uh, staff. And so the church exploded in growth. They had 30 kids in the children's ministry, but soon they were uh, reaching a thousand people every Sunday, and then over the next 2 years those numbers would continue to increase. But during that time, the Civil War broke out, and the mood of the church turned somber. The national spirit was dying. Many women in the church were wearing black because they'd lost a son or husband to the war. Darkness kind of fell over every facet of the worship service. Brooks, in his effort, tried to be inspirational and an encouragement to his people, but he himself was being drained. And then when the war finally ended, Phillips really thought to himself, he had anticipated that the vitality and joy would return to the church and to his life almost immediately, but but it didn't. It actually did the exact opposite because Abraham Lincoln was then assassinated. And that just intensified the pain everybody was experiencing. Phillips Brooks was not the president's pastor, but because he was such a great communicator, they called upon him to be the speaker at the president's funeral. He reached down deep in those moments and found the appropriate words for the moment, but later he was so burned out that he could not rekindle his own spiritual fervor. I don't know if you've been there before, but that's a dangerous spot to be in. So he asked his congregation for permission to take a sabbatical, and they gave it to him, and he went to the Holy Land. On Christmas Eve in Jerusalem, he and some others mounted horses and took off riding. It would be a wonderful life-changing experience for him as he prayed and he spent time alone with the Lord. At dusk, as the stars began to uh, come out, he rode into that tiny village of Bethlehem. The town had changed little since the birth of Jesus Christ, and it lifted Brooks' spirit to be there within just a few feet of where his Savior had been born. And there was singing in the church of nativity there, and he felt surrounded by the Spirit of God. He wrote in his diary, this is what he wrote. He says, again and again, it seems as if I could hear voices I know well telling each other of the Savior's birth. But before dark, we rode out of town to the field, they say, the shepherds saw the angel. As we passed... Shepherds were still keeping watch over their flocks. Somewhere out there in those fields we rode through, the shepherds must have been. It grew increasingly dark, and Brooke sat there on the hillside looking back at the village of Bethlehem. And there was a wonderful stirring on the inside of his soul. And later he would tell friends that he would have uh, forever singing in his soul. And when he came back a few weeks later, returning to Philadelphia after his sabbatical, he had a renewed vigor for ministry and for life, which too can be yours. But when he tried to explain to people what had occurred to him, he he came up short. Though he was a great orator, he just couldn't put the words together. He couldn't describe things. But three years later, leading up to the holidays, he decided again that he would consider that experience. And as he thought about it, he tried to think of ways to describe it, and instead of writing it in prose, he, he wrote a poem instead. A simple poem came to mind, and after he wrote it down, he took it to Louis Redner, and he, he wanted a song to be written with it. And the organist read, Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. And he somehow realized the power of what Brooks had experienced in the Holy Land. And Lewis Redder knew that he had to put a song to this poem. But no matter how hard he tried, he just couldn't do it. Everything that he wrote never, you know, it just didn't suit him. He wasn't excited. He didn't feel like there was a real connection with the words. But, you know, he went to bed that evening Uh, disappointed and he felt like he had failed uh, Brooks and he had failed the poem and he had failed what God was trying to communicate. But that night, in the middle of the night, he woke up with a simple straightforward tune in his head. So he wiped the sleep from his eyes and he wrote it down and he was excited because it fit perfectly with the poem. And as if blessed by God himself, on Christmas morning of 1868, O Little Town of Bethlehem was complete. And it became a favorite in the Philadelphia area for several years. And by the time Phillips Brooks died in 1893, it had become one of the most beloved Christmas carols of the world. Now, today in Harvard, where Phillips Brooks graduated, there's a building named after the Great Preacher. But it's Philip Brooks, the songwriter, not the preacher that millions know best. The song of a dedicated Christian really in search of spiritual renewal, something that we can all relate to probably. It still touches our hearts and our lives. And it demonstrates, though, at the very bottom line, how I believe God normally interacts with us and how God brings us forward and how he quietly comes into our lives. He comes into our lives in unlikely ways. And if you were looking at this story of, you know, the Savior's birth, you could see that God came to an unlikely place. Look at the first stanza of that verse. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So God did choose just a little town in which the Savior was to be born. Uh, There's nothing impressive, really, about Bethlehem. It's just a small village, a suburb of Jerusalem, probably about 200 people there. You know, there were no important crossroads. There were no no notable resources there. It was just a quiet shepherding community noted for two things. Number one, it had been the birthplace of King David, Israel's greatest king. And then number two, it was prophesied that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the coming Messiah. For it says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, written 700 years before this moment, described in Luke chapter 2, it says this But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So God did choose just a little town, right? Well, one day, God sent the angel Gabriel. To a virgin named Mary who was living in Bethlehem, but not excuse me, not living in Bethlehem, but in Nazareth, 75 miles north. And the angel Gabriel informed her that she was going to give birth to the Messiah. Imagine that. The Bible tells us, actually, that angels desire to look into spiritual things, that the angels did not fully understand the mystery of God's redemptive plan until it had completely unfolded. Isn't that amazing? And I would be curious to know if when Gabriel returned to heaven, if he wondered to himself, Man, she lives in Nazareth. The Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. I, I wonder how this is going to come about. And he probably watched closely over the upcoming months At six months, at seven months, at eight and a half months, there's no indication that Mary's going anywhere. And he's probably thinking to himself, man, surely she wouldn't travel now. But in Luke, in the second chapter of the Bible, uh, it says this, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. The King James Version says it this way, that all the world might be taxed. You know politicians, right? They're always looking to make a quick buck on. Anyway, I'll move on. Mary and Joseph. They were probably exasperated by the loss of time and the loss of finances. Why would Caesar want another tax? But if you look again to the scripture in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. See, Caesar thought that he was raising taxes, but really God was using him to fulfill prophecy. Because in Luke chapter two, verse four, it says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. So I think Gabriel sat back and thought, oh, this is how this is working out. But if you look at verse five, the scripture goes on. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger. God chose just a little town. You know, there's that saying, big doors swing on small hinges. God often selects small places to do big things, right? There's this old cartoon. I love this cartoon. that uh, yeah, used to come out on Abraham Lincoln's birthday. It's two backwoodsmen standing next to a split rail fence, you know, shooting the breeze. And one says to the other, hey, anything new up in your neck of the woods? And he says, no, nothing new. Nothing really important ever happens here. And he says, oh, well, you know, they they say that Nancy Lincoln gave birth to a baby boy last night in her cabin, but, you know, nothing important ever happens around here. But who would have ever guessed, right, that the most respected and loved president ever would have been born in Hodgkinville, Kentucky, a place that you can still go visit today. It's a good little trip. I'd suggest it. So God still chooses the weak things of the world to shame the wise sometimes. You, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah... Out of you will come the one who will be ruler of the world. So God chose just a little town and an unlikely place. But God didn't just stop there. He chose an unlikely people. He chose a peasant couple. The second stanza of Phillips Brooks' song reads, For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above while mortals sleep. The angels keep their watch of wandering love. God chose a peasant couple. Jesus' parents were not very successful in the eyes of the world. Mary was a young woman who was very special in God's eyes, and she came to Nazareth. She came from Nazareth, a town of about 300 people. Joseph was a carpenter, a noble occupation, no doubt, but, you know, it was mostly a hand-to-mouth kind of lifestyle. Mary and Joseph were so poor that when it came time to offer sacrifices for their newborn child, they offered up not the normal lamb, but two young doves, which, according to Leviticus chapter 5, verse 7, uh, was the offering of the very poor. And then you look at Mary herself. You know, I wonder if you would be willing or interested in letting her actually babysit any of our children for even a few hours. Now, I have a lot of children. You know, maybe maybe I'd be willing to take that risk. But if you look at her life, she was so young and she had no previous experience, right? Um, some people would say that she's a godly person, but sometimes she takes extreme risks, Who would take a four or five day journey on a donkey, nine months pregnant, uh, to a destination with no reservations, right? Then she, she did kind of have that questionable character reference. I mean, she was carrying a child out of wedlock. And perhaps someone, you know, one of us might add, well, she was a little unsanitary. She did put the baby to sleep in a feeding trough, right? Then someone might add, you know, she could be a little careless. I mean, she once lost her 12-year-old son in a huge city for three days, right? Would we have even hired Mary to watch any of our children? Yet Christ was born of Mary, the Father in heaven, entrusted his own son to this young, young maiden. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Maybe that's why Phillips Brooks wrote, gathered all above while mortals sleep. The angels keep their watch of wandering love. But God's ways are not our ways, are they? He entrusted his son completely to this inexperienced but very righteous peasant couple. You know, God chooses uh, the people the world labels many times as insignificant to do his will. David was just an overlooked uh, shepherd boy when Samuel anointed him king. Gideon was just a timid farmer when uh, God called him to be a major general. You have Amos, the fruit picker, who became a bold prophet. And when Jesus chose his disciples, he didn't choose the wealthiest of Palestine or the most creative or, or the best legal minds of his day. You know, he chose fishermen and tax collectors and unskilled, ordinary men. But with those 12 dedicated guys he impacted the world an impact that we still experience today now there are some exceptions right there are times god chooses the brilliant and the very gifted like uh, the apostle paul or c.s lewis and they do extraordinary things but most oftentimes, he makes do with ordinary people like mary and joseph maybe like me and you and you remember what Paul wrote in Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 through 27. He says, "Brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. <laughs> not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So God often chooses people the world labels as insignificant to do his will. And that's true not just for ministers and missionaries, that's true with every walk of life. God often raises up people from very unimpressive backgrounds to do as will. now there's a old US News and World Report magazine article I have from October 28th 2002 now for you younger folk you might not know but there were these things called magazines that you would buy at a bookstore that had paper pages right And there's an article there, Ike's Dark Days, how an unlikely leader taught an unprepared army to fight. So General Dwight Eisenhower, who became the leader of the Allied army and led the D-Day invasion and eventually became the president of the United States, had a very, very undistinguished beginning, if I can say it that way. Dwight D. Eisenhower was the third son of a failed Midwestern merchant Uh, Turned creamery worker Not not very good I chose a military career At West Point For the free college education After what they would call An indifferent cadetship In which he graduated right there In the middle of his class (laughs) He embarked on a very Undistinguished career As a staff officer And then he stalled out At the middling rank of major For 16 years in his first visit to the White House, they misspelled and mispronounced his name on the February 9, 1942 record of his initial visit to the Oval Office. It's a P.D. Eisenhower. But in spite of all that, he was commissioned to lead the English-American invasion of North Africa. And what was initially a failure... Uh, really was a failure. The Americans were driven back 85 miles in a week, which was more than that. They would be driven back in the Battle of the Bulge uh, two years later. There were 6,000 casualties listed in that battle. And Eisenhower was absolutely humiliated and probably demoralized Those were the dark days of Dwight D. Eisenhower. But he studied his mistakes and his leadership ripened with season. You know, it was George S. Patton who said that the DD and Eisenhower's first two names stood for divine destiny. So how could a uh, guy go from lieutenant colonel, right, to a four-star general in just six years? There was divine destiny uh, for his life, like there 's divine destiny for your life, he had never commanded a platoon in combat prior to the North African invasion, but he was called upon to lead the Allied forces to defeat Nazism. God chooses unlikely people sometimes, and I would venture to guess that sitting here this morning that there are some young people, probably who might not have the most impressive grades, who might not have the most striking appearance and might not be the most athletic, uh, but something's going to happen. God's going to tap them on the shoulder at a critical moment when they are needed, and they will be called upon to lead his people, to provide comfort for the hurting, perhaps to find a cure for some disease, people that were overlooked prior to that moment, because God's ways are not our ways And people will step back once again and be amazed again at the grace and mighty power of God working through an ordinary person. Daniel chapter 4 verse 17 says, God declared his verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the loneliest of men. So God chose, again, just a little town and an unlikely place. God also chose a peasant couple an unlikely people. Additionally, God chose some unlikely participants. He chose some shepherds. Now, the angels spread this great news, this great anthem. The people that they go to are the shepherds. They're the first ones that God communicates with. They're not part of the mainstream society. They're on the outskirts of town. And the reason they're out there is because they they had an occupation that rendered them ceremonially unclean so they were usually the ones overlooked by society, maybe maybe even avoided by the rest of society. But I would just say this, in every culture, there are shepherds. In every culture, there are outcasts. There are overlooked people. And what I love is that when God had something really, really, really important to tell the world... News he wanted to tell everybody. He didn't go to the blue bloods of Rome. He went to the shepherds. He went to the overlooked people, the people out of town, the poor people, the ceremonially unclean people. And I find it also interesting that many scholars would even go down this road and they would say, you know what? These people were probably watching over flocks that were used during Passover for sacrifices. Amongst those flocks, Those flocks would be the sacrificial lambs used to atone for people's sin. And perhaps that was true. So the ones that were raising the lambs for for sacrifice were actually about to meet and did meet the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. They would see the one who would put an end to all animal sacrifices that that religion espoused on a yearly basis. Consider this in Luke chapter 2. It says, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about the child. And so these are the unlikely participants in this great, great moment. And they left an example for you and I. They did three very clear things. They received, they responded, and they repeated. They received, they responded, and they repeated. And so they took by faith what was said to them from God through the angels. They just received it. They didn't have their guard up. They didn't pushed back. They received what God had for them in that moment. And then when they heard the news, they they responded immediately. They took initiative. They did something and they responded with what God had given them. And then once they found Christ, they went and told other people. They repeated what they had been told. According to the scripture, they spread the word concerning what they had been told to them about this child. You know, they didn't cross their arms and sit back and go, you know that angel, uh you know, he could have been tricking us. Or, you know what, I'm not really sure I want to do anything with this information. You know, I really like the warmth of this fire, you know. I just got my sheep down for the night and, you know, my dog's comfortable over there and, you know, I love my sleep. No, they responded. They took initiative. They received, they responded, and then they went out and they repeated what they were told. Sometimes we get caught up in trying to elaborate on the gospel message and what God's done in our life and Many times it's just the simplicity of repeating that brings people into a full understanding of who God really is. Really, many times it's just receiving, responding, and repeating. God is into using unlikely participants. Consider this, Phillips Brook uh, you know, the gentleman who wrote this song, he, he had a teaching post at his alma mater, the Boston's Latin School. He experienced great humiliation, uh, discouragement. He was utterly broken down in this spot. The, their, their local newspaper, the Boston's Zion Herald, wrote a review of his teaching and preaching. And this is what they said about this guy. They said his voice is not resonant, his enunciation is not clear, His speech had the rapidity of a mountain torrent. (laughs) He frequently misses the word wanted and sometimes flounders with his rhetoric. He seldom looks at his audience in the eye, but most of the time he turns his gaze towards the sounding board above his head. That was like their microphone system. His gestures are infrequent and usually awkward, but yet he became known as one of the most inspirational preachers and teachers of his time. He was an unlikely participant. So our call and the call upon your life is to receive, it's to respond, and it's to repeat because God, he's okay with unlikely places, unlikely people, and unlikely participants. Consider this. There was also an unlikely preview. Look at verse 7. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, many people think that Jesus was born in a cave because those were more prevalent, but that's not true. Some people think that he was born in a house because back then they would keep the animals on the lower level and they would live and sleep on the upper level, and that's not true. That's not what happened. And, and when, you, when you read that and, and when the Bible mentions in, it's not the Holiday Inn, the Ramada Inn, or a Days Inn, right, with that free swimming pool that I know your children just love and just grosses me out. Anyway, it's not one of those places, right? When the Bible says that there was no room at the end, really what we 're talking about are these these structures they would build on the outskirts of the town square, where caravans they would come in and they would stay in these out, in these and these little kind of square buildings that line the town square, and in the middle of the square, there would be some a fountain there would be some water so these these little outbuildings sat on the periphery of the square where the caravans would gather. So when they talk about no rooms in the inn, that's what they're talking about. There were no sleeping quarters around the periphery of the courtyard. The birth had to take place out in the public square where the animals were kept and fed. And that stone feeding trough, the manger, the Messiah, the Savior of the world was laid in there. That is where the birth of Jesus Christ took place. So how is this an unlikely preview, you might ask? Well, I can sum that up in one word. Accessibility. Accessibility. Anybody can come to a manger. It's not intimidating. You don't, you don't have to have your driver's license. You don't, you don't have to have your passport. You don't, you don't have to go through a security guard, right? There's nothing intimidating about going to the courtyard. Remember what the angel said in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. The scripture says, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. All people, even people on the outskirts, the marginalized, the overlooked, the people that no one really talks to or talks about. It's for everybody. And it's not just for the Jewish people. It wasn't just for the Americans, but it was for everybody. This is hope for all. The manger, the end it's public property. It's open to anyone and everyone. So that's the unlikely preview. His birth previewed his life in many ways. He was absolutely approachable. He made himself available to all kinds of people. You remember the little children, they'd run and you know grab onto him. And, and one time the, you know, the disciples were trying to shoo them away. And Jesus says, no, no, let, let them come to me. Remember on another occasion, right, there was a woman who had an issue, a a physical issue, and she broke through the crowd, and she grabbed a hold of Jesus' garment, and, and he spent time ministering to her in the middle of all those other people. What about the centurion who had a servant that he cared about who was at home sick, and Jesus spent time ministering to him? This manger was a preview of his whole life. The manger was a preview of his death on the cross, in fact. That was open to all. That's still open to all. The sacrifice is open to anyone and anyone who's willing to believe in him, trusting that his death was for them, taking away their sin. That's why the writer of Hebrews says we have boldness to enter the holy place because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So this was the preview. This is who God really presented himself to be. This is how he would live his life out. Out, out in the open, out there for anyone, right? There's the unlikely place, the unlikely people, the unlikely participants, and the unlikely preview, but then it gets even better than that. God gave us the unlikely person. God entered the world as a helpless infant. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of heaven. No year may hear His coming, but in this world of sin where meek souls will receive Him, still the dear Christ enters in. Now, i got to be honest with you. I have some hang-ups. Right. <laughs> One of those things, I surfaced early on in our marriage where I uh, gave my wife a, a pretty expensive gift. And, and I remember thinking to myself, I want her to know that it was a worthwhile gift, that it, there was some expense on my part to give her this gift, as if she wasn't monitoring the checking account anyway, right? And so I gave it to her, you know. Uh, I wanted to leave the price tag on it so she would know. <laughs> because I'm just that classy. <laughs> So instead, I said something even better. I said, I said something to the effect, I, I wonder if we can add this to renter's insurance or something like that, just in case something happens to it. Like a real dork, right? But, but my whole goal was, I wanted her to know that it cost something. And it's interesting, when God gave the most valuable gift ever given, there was almost no indication that it had any value. He came to earth silently, humbly, as a helpless baby, Somebody once said sometimes the most delightful gifts are are, are wrapped in the simplest of packages, like swaddling clothes, right? But to come as a baby. Ken Geyer, in his book, Intimate Moments with the Savior, writes, deity nursing from a young maiden's breast. Could anything be more puzzling or more profound? The divine word reduced to A few unintelligible sounds And then for the first time His eyes fix on his mother's deity Straining to focus The light of the world squinting Tears pooled in Mary's eyes She touches his tiny hand Hands that once sculpted Mountain ranges cling to her finger Geyer goes on And so with barely a ripple Of notice God stepped into the warm lake of humanity Without protocol And without pretension. Where you would have expected angels, there were only flies. Where you would have expected heads of state, there were only donkeys, cows, and sheep. Yes, there were angels announcing the Savior's arrival, but only a band of blue-collar shepherds heard that. And yes, a magnificent star shone in the sky to mark his birthplace, but only three foreigners bothered to look up and follow it. Thus, in the little town of Bethlehem, that one silent night, the royal birth of God's son tiptoed quietly by as the world slept now let me ask you why why did God choose to enter the world this way why not come with a tremendous display of power maybe like with a great ball of fire maybe if he he could have come as an 8 foot giant right or with an army Or with a Maserati. I can think of three reasons. I think Jesus came not just to save us, but to humbly identify with our struggles and sympathize with our pain. Somebody imagined... um, a judgment day with people standing in line, with people ready to be evaluated by the Almighty. And one by one, they began to mumble, who is God to judge us? He lives here in this perfect environment where nothing bad ever happens. So they formed a committee. they said, you know, if he's going to appropriately judge us, then he's got to go through some of the things that we've gone through on earth and face the horrors that this world has. So they formed that committee and they started to develop certain accusations against God. So if God's going to judge them fairly, he would need to experience these things. A Jewish Holocaust survivor said, let him be born of a despised race. A homeless man said, let him grow up in poverty and see how he does. A grief-stricken teenager said, let one of his parents die and let him weep into his pillow every night. A child from a broken home said, let the legitimacy of his parents be questioned and grow up in a single-parent home. A blue-collar worker said, let him have to work with his hands for a living. And a divorcee said, let him be betrayed by somebody he really loves. A prisoner of war said, let him be tortured and taunted by his enemies who hate him. A terminally ill patient said, you know what? He needs to struggle for every breath and then live with the agony of that impending final deadline. And one by one, they brought all their accusations and all their standards. And everyone was cheering because they felt like they had been empowered. And when the final accusation was made, Everybody turned silent because suddenly everyone knew that he had already served his sentence. You see, in the act of becoming a little baby, growing up in the poorest of circumstances, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize. That's empathize, not sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. So Jesus came not just to save us from our sin, but to humbly identify with our struggles and, and sympathize with our pain. The other reason, the second reason he became uh, as an infant was to demonstrate his power, which is a paradox, really. He came to demonstrate his power as a baby. His ways, of course, are not our ways. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, My power is made perfect in weakness. Just as we admire a coach who takes ordinary players and makes a championship team out of them, so this is God. God's power is made perfect in weakness. R.C. Sproul uh, once wrote a Christmas devotional called Big King, Little King. Once upon a time in the tiny land of Palestine, he writes, two kings were alive at the same time and at the same place. One of the kings was 70 years old and the other was an infant the big king was evil the little king was pure the big king was rich and powerful the little king was stricken with poverty the big king lived in an opulent palace the little king lived in a stable the big king's name was herod he was called the great the little king's name was jesus he was called a servant the big king died and is now remembered as a little king the little king grew up and became jesus the greatest who is now king of kings and lord of lords. So Jesus even said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. You can barely see it, but when it's planted and when it grows, it grows so large that even the birds can make their nests in it. So the second reason he came was to demonstrate his power. He's powerful Even in the small things, the insignificant things, the things that we overlook. Number three, the third reason that Jesus came as an infant was to illustrate for us how God normally still works in our life. You see, we're always looking for God to do something profound and supernatural in our life, something really overwhelming. But God usually works quietly and patiently. You know, Elijah looked for God in the earthquake and in the fire And in that great shaking, he didn't see God. He didn't hear God. But God came to him in a small whisper. He came in a whisper. And that's the way God usually comes to us, speaking so quietly and working so gradually that we don't even recognize exactly what he's doing, nor do we always sense what he's doing. He moves so stealthily in our life, and he allows us sometimes to even think that it's our idea to change, and it's our idea to do this or do that, but it really was God the whole time ooching us along and pulling us forward. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. And it really isn't the big things that often matter to people, is it? You know, if you turn around and you found somebody and you offered to pray for them, or maybe give a phone call to a relative who, who's just not expecting a phone call from you, and you strike up a conversation, just the little things, it's the little encouragements. You see the Walmart employee distressed, and, and you say, hey, how's it going, what's going on? I guarantee you a door will open for you to minister to that person. It's just the little things. It's the small things. It's how God often prefers to work in our life. It really is amazing. And it really does demonstrate his power. And it does reveal his true heart for us. So this Christmas, I just want to urge you. I, I'm just imploring you maybe to do the things that might go unnoticed. Maybe read Luke chapter 2 aloud with your family. Or as hokey as it sounds, sing happy birthday to Jesus because that really is what we're celebrating here, isn't it? Phillips Brooks wrote in his, who wrote this song, he once wrote this. He says, it's while you are patiently toiling at the little tasks of life that the whole meaning and shape of the great whole of life dawns on you. So we look for the great. What we're really called to do is steward the little. And it's through those moments that we can find not just great satisfaction, but great purpose. God chose an unlikely pace, an unlikely people, some unlikely participants, an unlikely preview, and of course, the unlikely person. He came. He came for us. And if you can feel the Holy Spirit's tapping on your shoulder, maybe, maybe the slight tug of your heart, even here this morning. I would encourage you, I would implore you to be sensitive to that and to allow him to speak to you in a whisper, that you wouldn't turn him off and that you wouldn't turn something else on. It's so much better to live this way to allow the Lord to talk to you and speak to you. It's so much more powerful and so much more lasting to allow God to build this up on the inside of you. The final stanza reads, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. If you would, with me, recognize the sacredness of this moment, would you close your eyes and bow your heads? For we're about to pray. I would like you to pray with me. There are those of you here this morning that need to rededicate your life. That there might have been quiet points. There might have been loud points in this message for you. But certainly the Holy Spirit is tapping on your shoulder. Certainly the Holy Spirit's whispering in your ear. And you can hear him. But I want to warn you. He will allow you to ignore him. And that, my friend, is something you should be so afraid of, that you would turn around and turn a deaf ear to the whisper of the Holy Spirit. So in this moment, would you pray with me? Lord, I open my heart to you. I open my ears to you. Whisper to me, I pray. Tug on my heart, for I'm open, Lord, to you. There is sin on the inside of me. There are some things that are unregulated, unchecked and unrecognized and I am ashamed of those things but right now I mention them to you in this prayer and I ask you for forgiveness. I see how comforting you are but I see how powerful you are as you came as a baby to do this great work on the cross to redeem me if I am but willing to accept your sacrifice. And this morning, this afternoon, I accept, I receive, I humbly receive this gift of salvation and relationship with you. So in your name, Jesus, I pray. I give you everything I have. Amen.
1: for growing to be a man for dying on the cross rising from the grave and paying the penalty for our sin and purchasing us a place in heaven for all who will receive your gift of salvation for anyone today who's ready to make that commitment before they leave may they come and see one of us today give us great joy May we serve you well. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Slip out quietly. There's people here praying. If you'd like someone to pray with you, there's people on both sides. Brother Anthony will be in the lobby. If you'd like to greet him, and please pick up your children.
0: joining us at Church of the Savior online today we hope you are encouraged to pursue God and grow in your walk with Jesus if you made a decision to follow Jesus for the first time today please reach out to us we would love to help you take your next step please visit our website for information on upcoming events and how you can connect with the COS family there is also a prayer request form where you can let us know how we can pray for you Thanks again for tuning in. Hope to see you next week.